The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. What a sweet and glorious time of worship we've had. And as we continue to worship, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 36. So let me invite you to take out your Bible or your phone and to turn to Acts chapter 2 verses 14 to 36. And we'll read that throughout the body of this sermon in just a moment, but I do want you to be able to follow along. So that's Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Would you join me now as we go to the Lord in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for the indwelling power of your Holy Spirit. And so help us this morning now to behold you with fresh eyes. Help us to see with the eyes of faith the glory and the majesty and the beauty of Jesus. Renew our hearts and minds with your word and make us more like your son Jesus this morning. And then we ask that you would satisfy our souls with Christ. We pray all these things in his precious and holy name. Amen. Have you ever read something in the Bible? You've read it maybe a dozen or even hundreds of times before, but on that particular day you read it and it feels like you're reading it for the very first time. It lands on you with just fresh power or fresh insight. Like in that moment you feel like God has kind of rendered the heavens and he's speaking to me right now. Like you just see it with fresh clarity that you just didn't see it before. Has that ever happened to you? I see some nods. In a sense, that's what's happening in our passage this morning. This morning, we're looking at Peter's sermon at Pentecost and a large crowd gathers. And this crowd is well acquainted with Jesus. They've seen him walk among them. They've seen him teach and do miracles and even yelled crucify him. And yet they didn't truly see Jesus for who he was. And so Peter stands up and gives a sermon and helps them to see Jesus' true identity. If I don't have my contacts in, I can't see any of you. My eyesight is that bad. But when I have my contacts in, I can see clearly. And in a sense, Peter is trying to put corrective lenses on the hearts of the crowds so that they would see Jesus as he truly is to be seen. So last week, we saw how the Holy Spirit indwelt all of the apostles and almost a total of 120 men and women. And the crowds gather, and they're perplexed, and they're amazed, and they're bewildered, it says in the text. And then in verse 12 of chapter 2, it says, what does this mean? The question left hanging in the air is, what does this mean? We don't know how to interpret what has just taken place. And so Peter stands up to answer this very question. Now, I want to ask the question, how big do you think this crowd was? The text doesn't tell us, but if you look all the way to verse 41 of chapter 2, it says that 3,000 people came to faith. And so, uh, uh, 
conservative estimate would be maybe 5,000 people are gathered in this crowd. And the crowds were looking for a spectacle. But what they get is the very first sermon of the early church. And what Luke records for us is probably a shortened and condensed version of what Peter actually said. If you read verses 14 to 40 in one sitting, it takes about three minutes. And so my guess is that would be the shortest sermon in the history of sermons ever, or it's likely a shortened, condensed summary, and Peter actually said a lot more than this. But Luke sort of boils it down and gives us this content. Now, let me just give a few preliminary comments about Peter's sermon. This is Peter's first sermon, and it could be argued that this is his best sermon ever. Why? Well, just 50 days prior, Peter committed the greatest failure of his life. He denied Jesus. And it's against that backdrop, denying Christ, that he stands up to preach this inaugural sermon. Second, this is the first sermon of the new era of the church. So it's the first Christian sermon preached on the first birthday of the church, on the first day that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all of God's people. It's a remarkable moment in history. And Peter preaches. This sermon resulted in 3,000 conversions. Not bad for your first sermon. And then Peter sets an example of preaching Christ, the center of the Christian faith. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't shrink back. He looks out at the crowds and says, you crucified him. He says that twice, verse 23 and 36. And yet he calls them to repent and believe. And the main point of Peter's sermon this morning is that Pentecost, he's explaining that Pentecost is the continuation of the ministry of the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Pentecost is the continuation of the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. That the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh at Pentecost is a manifestation of the ministry of Jesus. Though he was crucified, died, buried, risen again, and then ascended into heaven, exalted and now enthroned, and it's in fulfillment of all of the scriptures. So, the aim of Peter's sermon is that his hearers would understand who Jesus truly is. He wants to put on that corrective lens so that they would see him with crystal clarity in full HD. And then he wants them to fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to repent and believe, and then ultimately to obtain saving faith. And my aim for us this morning is that we would behold the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we don't see Jesus clearly, there are great consequences. If you don't see certain things well, that's okay. You know, if, if, I, if I can't see certain things or notice certain things, it's not a big deal. But if I don't see the wrong way sign and I go onto the off-ramp as if it was an on-ramp, there are severe consequences. And so it is with Jesus. If we don't see Jesus clearly for all that he is, there are severe consequences. So our plan this morning is to look at Peter's sermon in three points. The first is that Jesus pours out the Spirit 
in verses 14 to 21. And then Jesus is the resurrected Messiah in verses 22 to 32. And then Jesus is the exalted Lord and Christ in verses 33 to 36. So first, Jesus pours out the Spirit. I'm going to read verses 14 and 15 of Acts chapter 2. Please look along with me. Peter begins. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So Peter begins with a little bit of humor. He says, we can't be drunk. It's only 9 a.m., It would be a little bit like saying, even in Wisconsin, we wait at least until 10 or 11 or the first kickoff of the first football game before we start drinking our beer. And I'm not condoning drinking of beer from the pulpit. So uh, I think what, what he's trying to say is, we're not drunk. And then he goes on to explain what's really taking place. And so he quotes from the prophet Joel. So look with me, verses 16 to 21, which is quoting from Joel 2. 28 to 31. And it reads, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Stunning passage from Joel chapter 2, 28 to 31. And the first thing I want to note is that Peter changes some of the wording. And instead of, in in verse 28 of of Joel 2, so verse 17 of Acts 2, he says, and it it normally says, and it shall come to pass afterward. And instead he says, and in the last days it shall be. Peter is making the point that we are now living in the last days of redemptive history. And what takes place in these last days? God pours out his spirit on all of his people. There is the pervasive pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Look with me at verses 17. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then he breaks that down. It includes sons and daughters and young and old and even male and female servants. Regardless of age or gender or even social class, all of God's people will receive the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And that is what the people have just witnessed. And this is a stunning, stunning reality. Because if you remember all the way Back in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 11. Some of you might remember this. Moses gathers 70 of the elders, and they gather around the tent where God would meet with Moses. And Moses goes into the tent. God comes down in a cloud, and what happens? 
the Spirit, the Holy Spirit rests upon those 70 elders and they start prophesying. But then it stops. And then when Moses comes out, Joshua says to Moses, and he says, Moses, there's two guys, Eldad and Medad. They're still prophesying. Why don't you go tell them to stop? And what does Moses say? He speaks a prophetic word. He says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. What does Moses say in that moment? We don't want the Spirit just for a select few. It would be amazing. It would be a stunning reality that we wish, I hope, that God would pour out His Spirit on all people because then we would follow Him. Then our hearts would be transformed and changed that we would have the indwelling power and presence of God's Spirit. And Moses says, oh, that there would be a day when God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh And at Pentecost, that happened. That's the significance of that event. Why is Pentecost amazing? Because all of God's people receive the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, every believer here in this room, every believer watching from home, you have received the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Right now, it is true of you if you're following Jesus. And what does that Holy Spirit enable us to do? It enables us to sing like we did earlier this morning when we're worshiping with arms raised and hearts lifted up, declaring the greatness of our God. And it enables us to pray in moments of heartbreak, when everything has fallen and apart and we say, oh God, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he enables us to open up his word this week and find treasures. And we read things that we've read a dozen times and we read them like we're reading them for the first time because the Holy Spirit gives us illumination so that we see his truth and it causes our heart to rejoice. And it enables us to proclaim the name of Jesus to the lost, to relatives and friends who are hostile to Jesus, and to winsomely draw them in, perhaps even at great cost, to ourselves. If you feel weak and ineffective this morning, be reminded, you have received the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 19 and 20, look with me there. It uses language, dramatic language, speaking of wonders and signs. What is all of that about? At one level, he's using dramatic end-time language to describe these last days. And it probably encompasses things that have already happened and things that will happen because we're living in these last days. Jesus' first coming and his second coming and everything in between are the last days. And so when he speaks of signs and miracles, he's probably speaking at least at one level of Jesus' miracles. And then his crucifixion where the sun's light failed. That's what Luke says in his gospel. And it speaks of the sun being turned to darkness. And then there's Jesus' ascension and perhaps miracles still to come through the apostles. But all of that is pointing to the fact that we are now living in these last days. 
where God is authenticating his work and going to bring decisive judgment prior to Jesus' second coming. Now look with me at verse 21. It says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a general exhortation to call upon the name of the Lord. But in Peter's sermon, and in this context, he's shifting it a little bit. The name of the Lord that shall be called upon is no longer just a general call on the name of God, but now it is the name of Jesus. That's why almost every single song we sang this morning is to exalt in the name of Jesus. The name that we are to call upon is the name of Christ. And then Peter spends the rest of his sermon all the way from 22 onward just talking about Jesus. He only refers to the pouring out of the Spirit one other time. But everything else is about this Jesus because he wants them to see Jesus clearly. Yes, God has poured out his Spirit. The Holy Spirit's at work. But what that is pointing to is the person and work of Jesus, the exalted and risen Christ. And that's who he wants them to see. So in answer to the question, what does this mean? Peter provides the answer that what they're seeing and hearing, all of these language and these 120 people, is that God is pouring out his spirit in these last days. We're now living in these last days, and everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. And the rest of his sermon is to argue for the divinity of Christ. That Jesus is the Holy One. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. So now look with me at verses 22 to 32. We come to point two. Jesus is the resurrected Messiah. So Peter's sermon takes a sharp left turn. He stops explaining the events of Pentecost and now turns to tell us of the crucified and resurrected Lord. I'm going to read verses 22 to 24 of chapter 2. Men of Israel... Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 16. Now, before we get to that quotation of Psalm 16, let me just note what he says about Jesus here. He first says Jesus was a man, but not any normal man. He says he was attested to you by God. This could also mean accredited. It means that God established Jesus as genuine. He authenticated his identity and ministry through his signs and wonders and miracles. And so what Peter goes on to say, which is stunning in verse 22, is he says this, In your myths, as you yourselves know. What's Peter saying there? He says, when God established and authenticated Jesus as the Lord, as the Messiah, by doing all the miracles that he did, he did that in front of all of you guys. And you didn't believe. And so I imagine when this sermon was first being delivered, Peter looks out among the crowds and he's starting to identify people. He's like, you, 
You were there when Jesus did that very first miracle, turning water into wine. You tasted it. You said it was the best wine you've ever had, and you still didn't believe. And then he turns to somewhere else in the crowd, and then he says, you were there. There was a bunch of us in that house when those four guys started tearing off those roof tiles and letting down their paralytic friend. And we were all thinking, what in the world is going on as the dust fell on our head? And we were stunned. We were floored. Our jaws dropped to the floor when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Take up your mat and walk. And we saw it with our own eyes. And you still didn't believe. And then he turns somewhere else in the crowd. And he says, and you talked to the people when the demoniac fell down before Jesus in the area of the garrisons. And Jesus cast out those legion of demons that were having a conversation with Jesus, begging him for mercy. These were demons to Jesus asking for mercy. And he sent them into the pigs and they all went down the hill and they died. And you talked to those first-hand witnesses. Some of you were there. You saw this with your own eyes, and you still didn't believe. And then he turns to other people in the crowd, and he says, you were right behind that woman. When we were all gathered together, it was a mass of people, and she came up behind him and touched his garment, and he stopped, and you could hear a pin drop. Everyone froze, and he said, who touched me? And we all saw that woman. And she was healed. Her face said it. And yet you still didn't believe. And then he turns to someone else in the crowd and he says, and you remember Jairus' daughter. She died. And Jesus came and he rose her from the dead. He resurrected her. You can go down the street right now and have a conversation with Jairus and his daughter, and they will tell you exactly what happened. And to this day, you still don't believe. And then he looks out among the crowds and he says, a bunch of you were there when the 5,000 were gathered and Jesus took five loaves and two fish and he broke them. And then he kept breaking and he kept breaking and he kept breaking and we all ate our fill. We all had stomach aches because we had more fish and more bread than we could possibly want on that day. And you remember 5,000 men. There are all these women and children. It was like 10,000 people. And you ate of that bread and yet you still didn't believe. What Peter's doing is he's putting new corrective lenses over their eyes. Those signs and wonders that Jesus, that God was doing through Jesus, that was to show not just that this was a unique man. This was to show that he is the Messiah. He's the Holy One of God. He's the Jewish King, the Christ, and you crucified him. Not only did the people not believe, but they delivered him up. And Peter doesn't even mention probably, you know, remember all the sick and lame and blind and deaf and and demon-possessed. But we want to behold the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 23, he goes on and he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What Peter does in that moment is he highlights the paradox 
of Jesus' death. It was planned and carried out by wicked, wicked people. And God foreknew it, decided it, and planned it. Jesus was the greatest victim of an unjust criminal system. And yet it was that injustice that brought about God's just pardon for sinners. The most heinous crime brought about the forgiveness of sins so that whatever heinous crime you commit, you can find forgiveness. The lowest point of redemptive history, the execution of the very Son of God, resulted in the greatest climax of God's plan of redemption. This is stunning. Satan's greatest victory sealed and guaranteed his defeat and condemnation. And this morning, the paradox of the cross points to a reality for all of us that whatever hardships you're facing in your life, God has not lost control. You may be delivered over into the hands of lawless and wicked men, and it does not mean that God has forgotten about you or that he's powerless or that he's fallen asleep at the wheel. Whatever trials and hardships you're facing, the Lord Jesus Christ has gone through more and God vindicated him and God will vindicate every single one of his children who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter goes on in verse 24 and to highlight that Jesus could not stay dead. He says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is similar to the language used in Psalm 18, verses 4 and 5, where it says, the cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. What he's saying is that the very cords, the very power of death itself could not hold Jesus down, could not keep him in the grave. The grave could not keep Jesus dead. The stone could not keep Jesus in the grave. The chains of death itself could not keep him from rising again. And so what I want us to see this morning is Peter goes on to quote Psalm 16, but I think Peter is not trying to prove that Jesus rose from the dead. That's a given in his mind. Because over 500 people saw Jesus' resurrected body. And if you wanted to talk to someone who saw it, all those eyewitnesses are right there. Like you could say, you know, at threat of death, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And they'd be like, absolutely, kill me. Like, I'm ready. Every single person there. And so Peter's not trying to argue for the resurrection. What he's trying to argue is that all of these realities point to that Jesus is the Messiah, the Holy One, and the Christ. And that's the part the people have missed. They saw the resurrected body, saw the signs and miracles, and said, what a great magician. You're going to give David Blaine a run for his money. And Peter's saying, this is the Messiah. God's son 
has arrived. And we find salvation in his name. That's what he wants them to see in this moment. So I'm going to read verses 25 to 28, where he quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. So Acts 2, 25, it says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, the original context for Psalm 16 is where David, King David, is writing this psalm and it's expressing his confidence and trust in God. But what Peter does is he reinterprets this psalm and cites it, and not, not reinterprets it, but kind of gives it its full intended meaning because he learned to read his Bible from Jesus as the spirit-inspired utterance of Jesus, of the Messiah. And this Messiah would not see corruption or decay because God would raise him from the dead, which is what he just argued. Now, look with me at verses 29 to 32 where he goes on to explain Psalm 16. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." What he's saying, very simply, is that we know David died. We know that he was buried. You can go visit the place where he was buried today. We know where his tomb is. And so David could not have been speaking for himself. He was speaking of a future descendant, a future Davidic king who would not see corruption, whose body would not decay. And we are now telling you that this is Jesus. It's Jesus. So Psalm 16, if Psalm 16, 8 to 11 is true of Jesus, that he didn't see corruption, what does that mean? What's the conclusion? It means that Jesus is the true Davidic king. He's the one that God would establish on his throne forever and ever. He is the true Messiah. Every good Jew in that day, and these were primarily Jews gathered, what did they spend their life doing? Reading the scriptures and waiting for God's Messiah. Waiting for the Jewish Messiah. And Peter says, newsflash, you missed him. Not only did you miss him, you crucified him. But it was according to God's plan. It was, it was designed this way. And there's hope. There's hope in these verses. So Peter is trying to help his audience see the great significance here. Because no one disputes the fact that we we saw Jesus' resurrected body. It was really weird. And then all of a sudden he's gone. But it means that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the Christ. The cords of death could not bind him. Now, look with me 
at verses 33 to 36, our final point. Jesus is the exalted Lord and Christ. Jesus is the exalted Lord and Christ. Verses 33 onward. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not send into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So now he moves from the resurrected Messiah to now the ascended, exalted, and enthroned Lord and Christ. He's making a case that Jesus not only died and rose again, and he's the Messiah, but he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's the one who poured out his spirit. And so it's the continued work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he does is he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. And many would have known from 2 Samuel 7.13, that God promised David a descendant that would sit on his throne. And so Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a slightly confusing verse. It's written by David, but when David speaks this, writes this, in, in the original Hebrew, the first use of the word Lord and in your English translation, it's probably in all caps in Psalm 110, it's Yahweh. And then the second use of Lord is just sort of the normal word for Lord. So the logic of the verse goes like this. David, King David, writes of Yahweh, God. And he says, Yahweh says to my Lord. So not to David, but to someone greater than David, which we understand to be Jesus. So Yahweh says to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This can only be the Davidic king, the Davidic Messiah. So, Peter is essentially saying that that is where Jesus is right now. He's ascended to heaven, exalted to the right hand of the Father, and seated on his throne. And so, who is Jesus this morning? That's the most fundamental question for us to answer. How we answer that question has massive, eternal significance and ramifications and implications. Who is Jesus to you? Is he a really good guy? Maybe a great magician. Or is he the Lord and Christ. Peter wants these people to understand that the signs and wonders that they see and hear, all of these languages that they're hearing, are pointing to something much greater. It's pointing to the Messiah. It's pointing to Jesus, the man that just died 50 days ago, is now king. And he's seated up in the heavens. He's not dead. You can't find his body. He's not in the grave. You saw his resurrected body, but it means all, when you put all these things together, it means that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you want to be saved, call upon his name. So how do we apply this passage? 
And, and we've seen a number of things, but first I want us to see, see the depth of the scriptures. Some of us think the Old Testament's boring, or the Bible's boring. See how Peter cites three different Old, text, Old Testament texts to show that they're speaking of the Christ. Second, all of these things were fulfilled in Jesus. Second thing we want to see is that the miraculous events of Pentecost are pointing to the much greater reality. And I think this is really important for us because in, in, in some churches, I, I don't think in ours, but w- we could think, when I read Acts, I wish our church was like that. I want the highlight reel. I want signs and miracles and my shadow to heal people when I walk by and, and prophecy and tongues and all of these miraculous things. And yet all of those miraculous things were pointing to the greater miracle, which is the Lord Jesus Christ came, died, resurrected again, ascended into heaven, ruling and reigning, enthroned at the right hand of the Father, and he's in control, holding all things together for his glory and his purposes, and he's working all of that out. We have the greater miracle right before us, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you read Acts, All of the miracles, all of the stunning realities are pointing to the greater stunning reality. Oh, that we would behold the risen and exalted Lord and Christ. Third, the gospel rings out so clearly in this text. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. This truth ought to ring out from every pulpit, from the mouth of every preacher, every Sunday. Call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Are you fearful of the future? Call upon the name of the Lord. Are you anxious or frustrated or angry? Call upon the name of the Lord. Are you emotionally unstable or weak or frail, call upon the name of the Lord. There's only one name under heaven by which man and women and children can be saved, and it's the name of Jesus. This morning, all those who are far off can come near. All you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. Repent and believe. Call upon the name of the Lord. And when you call upon him, the result is that you shall be saved. Sweet, sweet, glorious news. Good news for hurting people. So we began with the question, what does this all mean? And Peter answered the question by showing that everything is pointing to the risen and exalted Lord and Christ. The languages, the pouring out of the Spirit, Joel's prophecy, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, all of it is pointing to the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Jesus. The miracles that Jesus performed point to Jesus' greatness as the Messiah. The darkening of the sun at the crucifixion revealed that it was the death 
of the Son of God. The resurrection points to Jesus' victory and power over sin and death. Jesus' appearance in his resurrected body points to his identity as Lord and Christ. The diverse languages at Pentecost point to Jesus' promise to pour out his spirit that he fulfilled. Joel's prophecy points to the new era that has been ushered in by the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of David's psalms point to Jesus as the Davidic King and Lord. Everything, everything, everything is pointing to Jesus. And so my question for us, do our lives, do our lives this morning point to Jesus? The way in which we live Is that testifying to the person and work of Jesus? This is the very heartbeat of Christianity, that Jesus is Lord and Christ, seated on his throne, ruling and working, risen and exalted and enthroned. And so do our lives tell that great and glorious story? And then do our lips proclaim this great and glorious story. And in just a moment, we're going to give you a chance to worship him as risen and exalted Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to see Jesus clearly. I pray that some would have seen him for the very first time in all of his stunning beauty and glory. Give us the corrective lenses of the heart so that we would behold him in all of his majesty and worship him as Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.